Welcome to the Hemon Pulse, the podcast that is all things hematology, the podcast where you can learn about all hematological problems. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I host this podcast, the Hemon Pulse, sponsored by Blood Cancers Today. And today's podcast focuses on treating and simplifying the approach to relapse and or refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And I couldn't be happier than hosting Dr. Greg Novakowski from the Mayo Clinic, professor, hematologist, and just an amazing all-star researcher who has been a major contributor to the field of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I'm a big fan of Greg, his contributions, his approach, and his methodical thinking when it comes to patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or other hematologic malignancies. Greg, welcome to the Hemon Pulse. It's uh, it's really, really a pleasure and honor to, to have you on. And uh, I want to make sure listeners really know who you are and more importantly, how much contributions you've done to the field. I've, uh, I'm a big fan, as everybody hopefully can tell. Well, thank you so much, Adi, and thank you for having me. This is a real honor uh, to, to, to be in this uh, podcast. I'm currently located in uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, Rochester, and uh, I am head of uh, lymphoid malignancy group here. And my personal passion is I, I'm a self-described trialist, clinical trialist in lymphoma. Uh, specifically, my passion is aggressive lymphoma, diffuse or B-cell lymphoma. Well, that is a very, very short introduction to a stellar career, but uh, that tells me a lot about your humility. And uh, I think a lot of folks probably can uh, search uh, PubMed and see the hundreds of papers that you've done. And um, uh, we probably won't have a lot of time to talk about uh, everything. But uh, I mean, you, you know, you, you've done the R squared chop. It was uh, one of the yep. uh, contributions that uh, everybody quotes. Yeah, but most of my uh, work was uh, focused on development of frontline uh, therapies in diffuser B-cell lymphoma and also uh, therapies for lapse refractor diffuser B-cell lymphoma. I think one thing that I've learned over the years that, uh, you know, sometimes the treatments which we hope would work well are not necessarily panning out in the clinical trials. Uh, we identify a number of reasons for why this was not the case, uh, that we could actually uh, move some of those uh, treatments to the clinic uh, there is some bias in selection of patients to clinical trials, some delays in diagnosis, which are actually probably affecting the results of those trials uh, uh, significantly. Uh, but, you know, in the last couple of years, we really have seen quite a revolution in the treatment of the QSRB lymphoma. We have multiple approved therapies now and more coming. So it's really a very rapidly changing uh, field. And I, uh, I have to tell you, though, I've always thought we've done a better job in prognosticating the LBCL like we kind of know which patient might do worse and which patient might do better. We've always lagged behind how we take that prognostication into therapeutic uh, changes. Yeah, and I think part of this is because we always did initial studies in a patients from real world uh, where some of the patients who wouldn't be yeah, typically accrued in the clinical trials were included. So you know, if you look at the initial studies looking, for example, for ABC versus GCB subtype, ABC was associated with much worse prognosis. And we don't really see it much as much in a clinical trials, in a prospective clinical trials. Yes, there is a difference, 
but it's actually much smaller than we had seen in initial papers. And this actually affects your whole prediction of how you design the trial, right? The, the, the control arms uh, are overperforming and it's much more difficult to show a difference in frontline studies and lab refractory studies uh, when we actually select uh, a patient population which does better than the real world population. So we're going to try to focus today on treating relapse disease. I, I don't know how much, maybe frontline therapy affects how we treat relapse disease. Maybe not. I'm going to, you're the expert. So you're the one who's going to try to dissect that for us. Because frankly, up to a, a year ago or so forth was Art Chop and suddenly these Polarix people uh, uh, threw a dent uh, in the treatment, which is hopefully helpful. But relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, when a patient comes in the door, um, how are we ap approaching this? Like, how, how, do you, how do you start thinking what you are going to do outside of clinical trials? Yeah, there are really two uh, initial questions. One is, what's the tempo of the relapse? So the timing of the relapse in relation to initial therapy. Um, and the second question is, patient performance status and ability to receive more of escalated therapies like CAR T-cell therapies or transplant. What we know based on the current randomized studies of CAR T-cells versus standard of care, which would be a previous standard of care, which would be a, a, a chemotherapy followed by transplant, that CAR T-cells in the second line perform better. So right now, the standard of care would be to proceed with the CAR T-cell therapy for the patients who relapse within the first 12 months. Uh, post-therapy. Uh, Those are the patients who do worse with the uh, subsequent salvage chemotherapy and transplant. For the patients who are candidates for those escalated therapies but relapse more than a year uh, after, uh, you know, we typically do quite well with the salvage chemotherapy and subsequent transplant. Uh, and that's what we do currently in practice. So uh, first decision is, are you a CAR T-cell or transplant candidate? Yes, no. And if you are, what's the what's the duration of remission following initial therapy. If it's more than 12 months, you actually may benefit still from salvage chemotherapy and traditional transplant approach. If it's less than 12 months, we really worry that you're the high-risk group. And here where the CAR T-cells are really making a, a, a significant dent, improving both event-free survival and overall survival for those patients. Now, the CAR T-cells obviously quite challenging to, to, to do, are not um, not everybody will be approved for those due to insurance issues or logistical reasons, and not everybody patient, not every patient wants to do that. And we have a number of um, of different therapies as well, which we have developed for those patients. Uh, but cartesis would be a current standard of care in a in a in a second line uh, for those early relapsing patients. But 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 in general, the classic teaching has been: if you have a relapse disease patient, you want to try to get them into remission first, regardless of what you want to do. Now, this is not to say, and I've done this, I've taken patients who were not in CR and I've done autologous transplant. We've all have done that. But I guess, let's say you have a patient who relapses less than 12 months. You give them salvage therapy and we'll talk about what is out there. If they achieve a CR, you would still do CAR-T or would you be tempted to do transplant if you got them into CR? That's, that's a great question and huge unanswered questions. We don't really know. Uh, the, are, you show the chemosensitivity. So the major reasons for a transplant not performing well in those patients, that a lot of patients are failing the salvage chemotherapy. They don't have enough good response to go then to the transplant. 
So you're absolutely right. If you actually can demonstrate chemosensitivity and somebody gets in the CR with the salvage therapy, uh, the transplant possibly would be a reasonable option. Uh, there's really no randomized data to answer this question. What we do, we try to extrapolate from our studies. And I think evidence suggests that if you actually do have the chemosensitivity, this transplant could be still beneficial. We're actually facing this, this question sometimes in the patients uh, who are initially uh, plan to undergo CAR T-cell therapy, uh, but then they go to bridging therapy because of delays in the products or logistical issues, and they actually have a CR. And what do you do next? Do you keep the you keep going with the CAR T-cells versus transplant? A lot of people feel that with the setting of the very nice chemosensitivity, proceeding with the transplant is quite reasonable. And 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 I and I do agree with it. Um, but you know, this is where ideally we would like to have a study. Uh, the focus yeah. on, on on this patient population to answer yeah. this question well. Now there are a lot of these CAR T compounds, and uh, just as by way of disclosure, neither me or Greg are being paid by any of the manufacturers of these CAR T. But uh, I mentioned that because a couple of ashes ago, there were like various studies that subsequently were published in the NEJM. But some of them showed survivals. Like there were various endpoints. We don't have time to go through all of them. Do you believe that if you decide to do CAR T in early relapse, there's one compound that's uh, one construct that's better than another? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to compare those studies across. Uh, they have different patient population. We've been burned so many times in in comparison of the of of this intrastudy comparison. So I would hesitate to 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 compare efficacy, and even toxicity has been somewhat difficult to compare in those settings. So you know. From from both approved products, I think it's a little bit of a whatever you're familiar with and 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 your center is is accustomed to doing. Uh, there are some logistical concerns sometimes as well with some of the uh, you know, production delays, which which are sometimes taken into account as well as the centers are approaching it. You have to get them into CR though, or the best remission possible. So, what do you do? What type of salvage regimens, I guess, you have at your disposal to get them there? So, so now we're talking about the patients kind of proceeding possibly with transplant. So, you know, the salvage regimens really have been established for quite some time. So we have choice here between RICE, R, T Hub, and uh, you know, cytobane's chemotherapy like RGBP, who's been has been used in this setting as well. Uh, they appear to be your equivalent in terms of the induction of, uh, of, of, of response. And then if the patients achieve remission, they'll go to the transplant. For the CAR T cells, you actually don't need to do that. You have you sometimes do it as a part of the bridging therapy if they rapidly progress, but otherwise patients with active disease can actually proceed to to CAR T cell therapy in a, in a second line. Uh, of course, our biggest prob problem, well, not the biggest, but the big problem, is that a lot of patients will not qualify uh, for those intensive therapies. You have to remember the median age for diffuse B cell lymphoma in the US is sixty seven. Uh, some people say even 69 right now in US, people have comorbidities. Um, and uh, uh, frequently they will have to basically look at some of the other uh, recently approved therapies uh, uh, in this setting. You've got two possibilities of patients. This is maybe thought provoking, maybe not, but everything I say, I always assume it's thought provoking. That's what happens when you're a host. It's completely, you know. Uh, but you have somebody who got CAR T and somebody who got transplant. If you have CAR T, are you still able to have a transplant if you have now secondary lapse? And if you have transplant, are you able to get CAR T in your secondary lapse? Or 
do you feel now this is like a one-time shot and after that you just go to other regimens? Yeah, I'll go with the second uh, question first. So we definitely have evidence that if you had a transplant, the relapse after transplant, you can go to CAR-Ts. In fact, this was the initial population of patients CAR-T cells were mostly studied in. So we know it's effective therapy in post-transplant relapses. There is emerging evidence now too that in a sequencing that you can actually use transplant post-CAR T cell relapse as well. The data is so far still limited just because those therapies are newer. newer. That the problem with CAR T cells is a pretty intensive therapy. And at the time of relapse, about half of the patients will be profoundly cytopenic. Um, in fact, we had a we had, we had a uh, abstract paper about this. Um, and it's a major problem because number one, you know, patients will not be eligible for typical clinical studies unless you're developing clinical study, which is almost develop a leukemia protocol. You allow people with cytopenia to enter it. The other problem with this is that even traditional cytotoxic salvage therapy, which you need to use before the transplant, is very difficult in those patients. So really, the ones who would pro proceed to the transplant later on are the ones who have somewhat durable response with CAR T cells, and then we relapse later on, and then you can give them salvage chemotherapy and proceed to transplant. Unfortunately, most of the patients which relapse early uh, will be cytopenic, who are going to be poor candidates for salvage chemotherapy. And here, where, where it, we really see huge unmet need for novel therapies. Uh, you know, bispecific antibodies are extremely uh, uh, promising in this space. They appear to be having relatively high response rates. Uh, there are several of those in development. None of them is currently approved, so they're all in a room of clinical trials. We would expect actually approvals happening later uh, this year, hopefully for for some of those, uh, because uh, you know those patients relapsing post-CAR T cells, particularly early, are in a really very difficult situation. So, what are approved therapies though for patients who have exhausted these? Because CAR T and transplant, there's a subset of patients that could get cured. To my knowledge, if you don't get cured by either one of these modalities, subsequent therapies do not provide patients with cure, but they can improve outcomes. What is out there in terms of approved therapies? And then we'll go into some of the drugs that you are very interested in that you at least think investigational and they're interesting. Yeah, so so, so there are, we, we had recently a number of uh, drugs approved in, in this space, which is really uh, uh, quite interesting because after a long time, well, we didn't really have a new products in diffuse or diesel and PUMA. Now we have drugs which are actually clinically quite active. Um, we have a renaissance of CD19. I always laugh about this because, you know, we always knew about C19. It was actually <laughs> described before C20, right? But nobody paid much attention to it. And now we have multiple drugs targeting it, including all the CAR T cells, uh, which are approved. So they are targeting C19. Uh, but we also have a monoclonal antibody called tafacitumab. That's an antibody engineered to have increased ADCC and direct cell depth uh, properties. And uh, by itself, actually, has a modest activity of about 25% or so in terms of response rate. But if you combine with lenalidomide, with, lenalidomide, with IMIDS, this combination becomes really very active. So there was a study called LMIND, which showed that combination was resulting in about 60% response rate and uh, uh, you know 40% or so, those were CRs. Uh, now, a lot of those patients are treated actually in a second line, so they were not transplant eligible to begin with. But even in trans patients relapsing after transplant, we definitely see activity of this combination. There was just an update done uh, of those results at ACR. And what's interesting about this combination that those responses are durable. There's about uh, 30, 40% of the patients in very durable remission still 
uh, after the initial treatment, which we had not seen before with chemotherapies. So to answer your question, before we consider those treatments mainly to be palliative, right, and nothingly providing cure, but some of those very durable remissions are now into getting into such a duration that we are start questioning, can some of those immunotherapy approaches or antibody combinations actually provide a cure to, to, to some yeah, patients? That's actually interesting. The ASER data on L-MIND, my memory is not serving me right in terms of how what the median follow-up was, though. I don't know. Um, do you remember what the median follow-up was? I don't remember it, but... I think it was about... I'll have to pull up the actual data, but I think it was about 48 months, actually. So it was quite That's big. Uh, it's like four it's years. Yeah. Yeah, four this, years. This was the five-year five year update on the study. So Have you, I mean, what, what type of side effects with tefazizumab uh, have you noticed? Just like an infusion type of thing, reactions? or? Yeah, so actually the infusion reactions are not very uh, common. So you do see it like with rituximab, and there is a typical premedication for it, but we actually do not see a lot of infusion reactions with tefazizumab. When you combine it with lenalidomide, you see myelosuppression, just as you would expect from the nalidomide-based combination. Uh, by the way, in this combination, the treatment of it with the doublet goes for about 12 months. Um, and then after 12 cycles of therapy, uh, you know, patients who are responding in initial study remained on monotherapy of the antibody until progression. Uh, so uh, in this, mm -hmm. even in this update, they've seen a number of patients still remaining on the therapy. Uh, it is very difficult to stop. I have some patients now on monotherapy for a couple of years and you know, questioning when do we stop? And that's something which is trying to be now answered in, in ongoing studies. Can we actually stop? And then how they will do if we're actually challenge them in case they actually progress if we stop the therapy. Uh, but but antibody itself was actually very well tolerated. And even in extending follow-up with monotherapy, they, they did not see uh, much of the infections or toxicities, uh, which, is, which is extremely encouraging. Yeah, that's the Elmine study that was uh, recently updated at ACR. I don't, it's probably somewhere in print. I have not seen it uh, published yet. But um, what uh, what else is out there aside from uh, the Elmine data and studies that uh, yeah. uh, we can use? So then you have two antibody drug conjugates. Uh, one is a polatuzumab pedotin, uh, which again by itself showed some activity, but wasn't necessarily uh, uh, you know breaking the records of activity about thirty percent or so. Uh, but then if you combine it with bendamustine and rituxan, it showed a response rate of about 60, 50 to sixty percent, and about half of those were CRs as well. If you look at the, you know, at the study originally published by Laurie Sand, the duration of response and then progression for survival was shorter than we've seen in Elmine. But again, there are different patient populations. I think, uh, you know, we, we we have to keep it in mind. Uh, so this combination of bendamustine, rituxan, and platuzumabidotin became quite popular in in, in treatment uh, of patients who are not either relapsing post those cellular therapies or transplant or uh, not eligible for those uh, therapies. Now, this may change a little bit with what you mentioned about Polarex, so the frontline approval and maybe more use of polatuzumab vedotin in upfront therapy. We'll have to see how active this therapy will be in patients relapsing uh, if the polatuzumab vedotin was already used upfront. The other frequent use of this therapy is actually in a bridging uh, in a second line because you know with tafacitumab uh, or other CD19-directed therapies, you worry about blocking CD19 and what, how it's going to impact CAR T-cell activity later on. So platuzumab by not targeting CD19 uh, became a little bit of a treatment of choice in bridging. 
typically in bridging, we actually try to omit bendamastin because it's uh, uh, lymphodepleting. So a lot of people were using rituximab with uh, polatuzumab with omission of bendamastin. And uh, there was actually a study called Romulus, which was actually showing the very reasonable activity for this combination. Uh, so as a, as a bridge, that's a commonly used regimen. Now, with platuzumab moving to frontline therapy, we may be in more urgent need of better bridging therapies, uh, which is another big unmet need in lymphoma. You know, the, the way I see the two unmet needs right now is this bridging therapy of patients with early relapse before the solar therapies, so we can actually control the disease, and then uh, the post-cartesia relapse, which we which we already uh, discussed. So, uh, definitely you know, but in- one of the other things, Greg, is that. If polatuzumab starts being used a lot in the front line, I don't know um, the impact on even CAR T, because all of the CAR T data that we have are really mainly in patients who receive prior R chop, and I think that's really where real world data and real world evidence. I don't think we're going to have a trial. Uh, it's going to be some retrospective series of folks who got both, and people are going to report on them. I think. Yeah, you're right. Actually, Polarex is interesting and whole topic of uh, possibly for a podcast altogether, yeah. right? Uh, I was actually on ODAC uh, uh, committee when we were discussing it and and, uh, uh, and trying to decide if we actually will support its approval or our recommendations to FDA. Some of the concerns, as you know, are the relatively marginal or limited benefits in progression-free survival and, not, and lack of overall survival. Also, if you look at the split of the PFS curves, it actually occurs pretty late. So, um, you know, a lot of those patients, I don't think they are falling into this very early aggressive group, uh, which are really affected by additional platuzumab So, um, in, in my book, probably the impact on second-line therapy would be less, uh, just based on, on looking at the, how the curves are looking and probably would be less likely that over time, even with maturation, the study actually will show overall survival benefit. So for me, uh, when I said it publicly during all that, it's, 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 it's an option, uh, but not necessarily a new standard. Artrop improved progression-free survival and overall survival became a standard. Uh, PolarX, I, I voted yes, and I fully supported its approval because it does show meaningful gain in progression-free survival. But it's more of an option. And if you have a study which is still randomizing patients to RTROP or using RTROP as a backbone, there's still completely a valid valid construct and, and therapy right now. Yeah. Well, you just bought yourself another podcast. I need to figure <laughs> out, knowing your schedule, we, we will still will get, but we're probably looking at July at this point because I know how busy you are. Is there anything else in terms of real-life disease that you think uh, worth mentioning? Yeah, antibody drug conjugate, lonkastuximab tessiturin would be uh, another therapy which is uh, quite active. Again, it targets C19. So we have three CAR T cells and two antibodies, one naked tafacitumab and one antibody drug conjugate, lonkastuximab, which targets C19. The response rates, again, are quite high for this drug, uh, antibody drug conjugate. And we actually do have, we actually do have a nice data in patients who are lapsing after CAR T cells. And the response rate appears to be the same uh, as in patients who did not receive cortisol, which is very encouraging. So that's that's another option. Um, you know, it does cause some myelosuppression, as you would expect with the with the uh, antibody drug conjugate, um, and as some unusual toxicities like fluid retention, but which which can be can be managed. But overall, it's a quite well tolerated therapy. It's given on every three week schedule and uh, definitely very active. Now. Because you have all those therapies now, you can imagine the number of permutations of sequencing 
and combining them together. So I, I think that we are at the beginning of this revolution that not only that, but now we have those uh, therapies, but we can actually start combining them in a rational way and try to evaluate how the sequence of these therapies will work in, in care of our patients. And this is where the real world data will really be important. There's no way we can randomize all those treatments against yeah, each other absolutely. and evaluate the different sequences of this treatment. So the real world data actually, I think, will drive our choices here in the clinic. Hey, you're singing my tune. I like real world data. I get <laughs> criticized for how much I like real world data, but I do. Greg, it's such a pleasure to actually uh, have you on the Hemang Pulse. I want to have you again. We're going to talk about Polarix. And actually, I'm very interested in whatever you can share with the listeners publicly about the ODAC experience. I recently read the book of Mikhail Sekiris, uh, Drugs and the FDA, great book, a plug for Mikhail on this podcast and talks about his ODAC experience. So I think a lot of uh, our listeners and viewers would be very interested in that experience. I'll be happy to do it and looking forward to it. And again, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>